Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It has been far, far too long since we last spoke, you and I. I've missed you. A lot's happened in the last few years, no? I wasn't sure how to deal with all the... No, I'm just going to say it. I was too worried about our descent as a country into fascism, and I was intimidated by it, along with issues in my personal life, and I found that this show, and unfortunately you guys too, were no longer top of mind. I'm so, so sorry. I should have continued work. I had intended to, actually. I had set everything to launch a new show. We we're going to call it The Idiot's Guide to the Resistance. But again, due to distractions, but mostly life getting in the way, I found myself with roadblock after roadblock, distraction after distraction, and, well, you know how time works. To quote the absolutely iconic Pink Floyd song, Time, from Dark Side of the Moon, quote, Every year is getting shorter, never seem to find the time. Plans that either come to naught or half a page of scribbled lines. Hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. The time is gone. The song is over. Thought I'd something more to say. I do have more to say, though. I want to talk about English ways. I want to talk about American ways. I want to talk to you about something that nearly everyone, including children, cannot get enough of. Thank you, Pink Floyd. I couldn't have said it cheddar myself. That's right. This episode of the Danny Nerdnik podcast, what we'll call, I don't know, season two, episode one, is about cheddar cheese. Now, you know how this show works, if you've listened before. For those of you returning to me, welcome back, and a very, very warm welcome for, for our first-timers. I like to break the action up into a few segments, and this episode is going to be much the same. However, in lieu of the normal food trends roundup, I'm going to do a top ten. You all know, though, it wouldn't be fun if we didn't have a look at the negative side, too. So a bottom ten is coming at you as well. So without further ado... The top 10 most popular cheese varieties in the United States of America uh, from WallStreet247.com, as written by former editor-in-chief of Severe magazine, Coleman Andrews, a human being that I have had the absolute pleasure of serving at former restaurant jobs. So let's just kind of break down the methodology that they used uh, to find the most popular cheeses in the United States of America. So to, to determine the most and least favorite cheeses in America, 24-7 Wall Street consulted data from the USDA, an agricultural marketing research center, as well as a survey of 1,000 consumers uh, conducted by the meal planning app Init and the food business news Cheese Market Times, excuse me, Cheese Market News, Time Magazine, Chowhound and Ranker websites. So this is like a, a heavy hitter list. This actually has some weight behind it. Um, I'm actually going to put a little bit of credence into what they have to say. So, number 10, Getost. This unique Norwegian cheese, typically sold in deli cases, uh, in bricks wrapped in red foil, is more like a love it or hate it type thing, with most Americans seeming to come down on the latter side. It's caramelized into a butterscotch color and tastes sweet and fudge-like, 
and it also reminds some people of peanut butter. Now, I've never had it. Uh, it's not necessarily bad, but it's not what most people think of as cheese. Like I said, I've never had this particular type of cheese, but frankly, it does not sound like something I'd enjoy. Um, it reminds me of like, I don't know if I'm, if I'm saying this right, butter tablets, like that Scottish candy that's just cloyingly sweet and super rich and when you put it in your mouth your teeth feel like they start to melt that's what this reminds me of anyway number nine limburger which is actually made only in wisconsin despite its german sounding name limburger cheese has a reputation of as one of the world's stinkiest cheeses and has been the butt of jokes by everyone from charlie chaplin to larry the cable guy and limburger itself gets more pungent as it ages the e-commerce site the e-commerce site excuse me the wisconsin cheeseman calls the cheese weapons grade and in full-on sweaty sock mode when it's four months or older um Limburger is good. I try not to eat it. It offends my palate. I'm not a big fan of uh, this particular stinky cheese, even though stinky cheeses are absolutely divine. Usually a big fan, like Telegio, big fan. Um, I love any kind of ripe provolone, ripe parms, blue cheeses, but this one is a little bit too, as he says, sweaty sock for your boy Danny Nerdnik. Number eight is feta. Uh, this Greek or imitation Greek cheese, traditionally made from a blend of sheep's and goat's milk, but is now also produced from one or the other, or even cow's milk, is brine cured, leaving it salty and tangy. Now, this is not a melting cheese, but it's unparalleled for crumbling into salads or slicing as an accompaniment to kebabs or other Mediterranean dishes. I would recommend taking some fresh watermelon, like carve with a watermelon out of the rind, uh, toss it with a little bit of red wine vinegar, a little bit of dry oregano, salt, pepper, um, and feta cheese, and just hit that with a little bit of the brine to give it a little bit more salt presence. Toss that all together, maybe throw in some tomatoes. Fantastic summer salad for, for your uh, porch when you're just kind of sitting out grilling. Uh, number seven, Monterey Jack. It is a true American cheese. It was first made in Monterey, California as early as the 1700s and popularized in the 19th century by, and then eventually named for, dairyman David Jack, excuse me, David Jacks, J-A-C-K-S. This is a mild, creamy cheese. It melts beautifully. And Pepper Jack, a variation spiked with bits of spicy chilies, was ranked as the fourth favorite cheese in a recent survey of 1,000 American cheese lovers. Interesting. Um, I find Monterey Jack to be a little bit underwhelming most of the time. Melts great, like I said. It's a fantastic component in a mac and cheese, but I would never have it as the sole cheese in a mac. I don't think it has enough flavor to really carry things through. But once again, that's just my opinion. Uh, number six is Swiss. Now, Swiss is a generic name for a family of American-made cheeses inspired by Switzerland's Emmental and its relatives. Jarlsberg, a staple of every supermarket cheese case, is a Norwegian variety on Swiss cheese. Its flavor is slightly sweet and is often described as nutty. And Swiss is a deli, essential san or deli sandwich essential excuse me, and often appears in cubed form along with cheddar on party platters. Now, I think that Swiss cheese specifically Gruyere, makes an absolutely amazing grilled cheese sandwich. Throw maybe some ham, a little bit of Dijon mustard, 
uh, slice of tomato, sourdough bread, grill that motherfucker up in a little bit of delicious clarified butter. Thank me later. Tweet me. I know you will. Number five is brie. Not brie larson, just the cheese. Uh, either in its natural state or baked in a pastry casing, in which form it's usually served with uh, sweet preserves. Brie is the definitive party cheese. Now, there are American versions, but mass-produced brie from France, its country of origin, is commonly available in the United States. As it matures and grows runny, brie gains pungency. But when it's young, a lightly, it's lightly flavorful and incredibly accessible, but still just like a little bit exotic and perfect for a crowd. Big fan of baked brie and croute. Put a little bit of blueberry preserves. Make sure you have some hollandaise sauce. A little bit of like crostini, like long slices of bread that you throw on a grill. A little bit of olive oil on there. You're going to have a great time. Guaranteed. Uh, number four is provolone. Rated by 1,000 U.S. cheese lovers as their fifth favorite cheese, the semi-hard Italian or Italian-style cheese has a buttery, slightly tangy flavor with a present with a uh, learn to speak the language with a pleasant aroma and a mild but pronounced aftertaste. It's another very popular deli cheese and practically indispensable on antipasto plates. Number three, Parmigiano Reggiano. This classic Italian cow's milk cheese owes its immense pos. Po uh, owes its, <laughs> excuse me, I'm going to try that again, owes its immense popularity primarily to the fact that it's on the table or av uh, available at virtually every Italian restaurant in America, and there are estimated to be almost 30,000 of them, not counting pizzerias. There are another 71,000 of those reportedly. Americans, Americans, I should know how to, you know, speak the name of my countrymen, right? Americans are beginning to learn what Italians have long known, though, that aged parmigiano is also a superb eating cheese accompanied by nothing more than fruit and good red wine. Now, I would say that if you have a big old block of parm, excuse me, I'm just going to say that for the time being, if you have some parmigiano reggiano, I would recommend, like, some plums, dark, juicy stone fruits, or... Honeycrisp apples, something sweet to counter the savory saltiness of the cheese. Um, I would also say if you're going to have wine with it, have something, um, I would I would say something from Emilia Romana, um, from Tuscany. I would say something bigger, bolder, um, less uh, in the way of like savory notes and go more fruit. Or go full to the other end of the spectrum, go full on savory, like a big old super Tuscan that's kind of dark orange with watery red rim around the outside. Uh, if you drink wine, you know what I'm talking about. That might be fabulous. Regardless, if you have parm, a little bit of fruit, and some red wine, you are already winning at life. Like, you're doing way better than I am right now. I got a Nalgene bottle covered in Doctor Who and Overwatch stickers just full of Brita water. I mean, I, I could go for some red wine. I could go for some cheese right now. I could go for some fruit right now. For fuck's sake, this sounds absolutely incredible. Oh, I want some cheese. Uh, number two, the subject of today's episode, cheddar. Now, according to USDA data, cheddar is the second most popular cheese in America, with consumption in 2017 reaching 11 pounds per capita. Colby, Monterey Jack, and other related cheeses added another 3.99 pounds on sandwiches or casseroles as a snack or mousetrap bait. Cheddar has a place in our hearts. And I'm going to reference myself from the corned beef episode. Has a place in my heart as delicious, delicious cholesterol. Um, yeah, 
that's near and dear and in my heart. And the number one favorite cheese of Americans, according to this, uh, this poll from 24-7 Wall Street, from a friend of a friend, the brilliant Coleman Andrews, number one favorite cheese of Americans is mozzarella, believe it or not. To the surprise of no one who has ever ordered a pizza, the number one favorite cheese in America is mozzarella. Now, this can mean anything from the rubbery supermarket stuff to artisanal mozzarella di bufala uh, from Italy, or even trendy burrata, which is like mozzarella, but you take the, the mozzarella ball and you pour cream in the middle and then you seal it off. And then the cream itself in the middle, because of the rennet uh, in the cheese, is going to take on like this super fresh, creamy cheese... Um, appearance texture in the middle and then like you can eat it like hand fruit which is kind of dope um where was i oh right americans consumed nearly 11.57 pounds of mozzarella per capita in 20 and 2017 favorite indeed now i have here a bottom five i acquired this particular list from the today show which I don't trust. I assume due to the rankings on this list that this came from the ever-elusive seventh hour of the Today Show where Hoda and Kathy Lee have given up on their wine and gone straight to the, the laudanum, opium, and mezcal. So I don't know if this list is definite. Is, is definite. I don't know if this list is necessarily accurate, but I'm going to give this to you uh, in, in the order that it was given to me. Uh, because I want you to see how ridiculous this is. Now, keep in mind, I have nothing against Hoda and Kathy Lee. They just drink on TV, which is kind of ridiculous. Ladies, get your shit together. Regis just died. Kathy, come on. Anyway, this list is from 2018, so things might have changed. I might be in the wrong here, but I think Coleman Andrews has the right uh, measure of things, frankly. So uh, the number five least favorite cheese in America is Swiss, which I don't understand because I just extolled the virtues of Swiss cheese for a good three minutes. Number two is Limburger, which I don't get again. Um, not my favorite, but it seems like the people in the Midwest who are of German descent, who are of um, European descent, tend to like stinkier cheeses. And I assume that this falls into that category. So I think this list is just bullshit, frankly. Number three is goat cheese the fuck this list is totally wrong i love goat cheese then again i'm a weirdo i have two degrees from culinary school so what the hell do i know about the common person like a okay so if you listening were to take a full log of chevre you know the, the like four inch ones and then freeze it and then batter it and fry it and serve it on an arugula salad with like i don't know some fantastic duck confit you're doing it right congratulations the number four least popular cheese in the United States of America. Did I just do this backwards? So Swiss was number five. Number four is American, uh, which I don't understand. It's terrible. It's not even cheese. It's um, vegetable oil with water coloring and a little bit of salt passed through it. Not particularly good. Uh, then goat cheese, goat cheese, Limburger and and blue. So blue seems to be the least popular cheese in America. Again, I don't understand. It's funky. It's delicious. It goes on a lot of things like with caramelized onions, some mushrooms and blue cheese. 
broiled on top of a burger with some bacon, a little bit of barbecue sauce. Come on. That's a fantastic cheeseburger. I mean, that's, that's the shit right there. That's really, really delicious. I'd eat the hell out of that. Okay. Obviously, one of these two sources has it wrong. Granted, there is a two-year difference between these two lists, but I tend to trust those who are knee-deep in food or like hip-deep in the restaurant industry when it comes to what's hot in food. So I'm going to go with Coleman on this one. All right. So I promised a cheesy show and I shall deliver. So when we come back in just a moment, we're going to jump into our handiest time machine and and set the instruments to take us back in time. When we come back, this is the Danny Nerdnik Podcast. Stick around. Welcome back to the Denny Nerdnik Podcast. Thanks for sticking around. I really appreciate it. So, have we all settled into our TARDISes, our DeLoreans, our Bill and Ted phone booth. Pick your, your time machine. Hopefully you're all comfortable, sitting well, uh, sitting comfortably, making yourself at home. All right, let's travel through time. The year is 8,000 BC, BCE. And it's the dawn of civilization. The human race has domesticated animals and is now utilizing milk as a source of nutrients. We're barely out of the caves, but we figured out how to how to milk animals. Amazing. Uh, we're a resourceful and absolutely bat- batshit species. Fuck. Okay, so imagine two just-out-of-cave people. We'll call them Og and Kronk. All right, so I'll, I'll narrate this little playlet for you. Uh, hey, Og? Yeah, Crunk? Watch this. And Og proceeds to be the first person to find that you can milk a goat, even if his end goal was to... You know what? Never mind. Uh, let's just say he was looking for a new animal to get delicious, nutritious, rich milk from. Um, and milk... Milk is full of fat... It's full of protein, it's got vitamins, minerals, and sugars in it. Uh, Sugars like lactose, which many humans to this day are still unable to process particularly well, myself included. I'm coming out as lactose intolerant. I love heavy cream, I love ice cream, I love cheese. I love milk, but I can't have them as much as I used to, or else. Or else. However, being that it was still nearly roughly 10,000 years until the first refrigerator, there was a conundrum. How to keep this amazing substance, this fantastic milk? Well, it is at this point we meet the confluence of human ingenuity and fate. Someone must have suggested they stored the milk in their wineskin, made from the stomach of a goat, sheep, or cow, and when the milk but the residue of the rennet, an enzyme found in the stomachs of rumens, and the heat of the day in what seems to be the Mediterranean, the milk began to separate into two phases, curds and whey, the curds being the solid bit and the whey being the liquid bit. Think cottage cheese. 
In fact, some of the oldest dairy relics, and I'll go into this in a little bit greater detail um, in just a moment, but the oldest dairy relics suggesting not only cheese making but butter churning as well, dating back to the seventh millennium in Turkey. And archaeologists have found both the residues or the residues of both cheese and butter upon Turkish pottery dating back to that time. Uh, so towards the end of the Bronze Age in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamia, cheese, much like salt, later on in Roman times, uh, would have been considered payment and became immensely important to the economies of the region. In fact, there were specific cheeses mentioned in documents used for particular religious rituals. So it's not, it's not just, hey, have a lump of cheese, have some bread. It's like, we're going to go to the temple and we're going to pray to the gods, but you must bring the proper cheese or else God's wrath. Scary. Imagine if you were supposed to bring Swiss and instead you brought a wheel of Parmesan. Be crazy. Huh. So, um, like I said, different cheeses for different religious rituals. Uh, but we're going to loop back to the Turkish for a sec. The ancient Turks were really the first to discover and really codify the use of rennet, which is, like I said, that enzyme that's found in the stomachs of rumens, stomachs of rumens, um, things that have more than one stomach. Um, think cows, goats, anything that, that has more than one stomach to process food. Um, and this rennet really helps to kickstart the coagulation of the protein in milk by the lactic acid. Uh, in what seems to be Nerdnik tradition now, we come back to the Roman Empire. First, they were responsible for wine in France, though I'm sure the French would most likely disagree. And now it seems they're responsible for the proliferation in, of cheese making through Europe and the diversity thereof. Um, and when we come back, we'll find out just who cut the cheese. Spoiler, it was me. I was hungry. Back in just a sec. Stick around. Welcome back. I'm Danny Nerdnik, and this, of course, is the Danny Nerdnik Podcast. Today, we are talking about cheese, and we're going to get to our subject, cheddar cheese, in just a moment. But I want to lay down some facts now that we've set the scene. So, from the Wikipedia, we're going to go all clinical and scholarly here for just a moment, if you don't mind. Cheese is an ancient food whose origins predate recorded history. There is no conclusive evidence indicating where cheesemaking originated, whether in Europe, Central Asia, or the Middle East, but the practice had spread within Europe prior to Roman times, and according to Pliny the Elder, had become a sophisticated enterprise by the time the Roman Empire came into being. Earliest proposed dates for the origin of cheesemaking range from around 8,000 BCE, like I was saying before, uh, when sheep were first domesticated since animal skins and inflated internal organs have, uh, since ancient times, provided storage vessels for a range of foodstuffs. It is probable 
that the process of cheese making was discovered accidentally by storing milk in a container made from the stomach of an animal, resulting in the milk being turned to curd and whey by the rennet from the stomach. There is a legend with variations about the discovery of cheese by an Arab trader who used this method of storing milk. Now, the earliest evidence of cheese making in the archaeological record dates back to 5500 BCE and is found in what is now uh, Kuyai. Kuyavia, Poland, uh, where strainers coated with milk fat molecules have been found. Cheese making may have begun be, uh, cheese making may have begun independently of this by the pressing and salting of curdled milk to preserve it. Observation uh, that the effect of making cheese in an animal stomach gave more solid and better textured curds may have led to the deliberate addition of rennet. Uh, early archaeological evidence of Egyptian cheese has been found in Egyptian tomb murals dating to about 2000 BCE, and in 2018, a scientific paper stated that the world's oldest cheese, dating back to approximately 1200 BCE, uh, 3200 years before present, was found in ancient Egyptian tombs. The earliest cheeses were quite sour and salty most likely, similar in texture to a, a rustic cottage cheese or feta, a crumbly flavorful Greek cheese as described before. Uh, cheese uh, produced in Europe where climates are cooler than the Middle East required less salt for preservation. Uh, with less salt and acidity, the cheese became a suitable environment for useful microbes and mold, giving aged cheese their respective flavors. We're going to talk about that in more detail when we actually get into the aging process of farmhouse cheddar cheese uh, from the UK. Uh, with less salt and acidity, the cheese became a suitable environment for useful microbes and mold, giving aged cheeses their respective flavors. The earliest ever discovered preserved cheese was found in the Taklamakan Desert in Xinjiang, China, dating back as early as 1615 BCE, 3,600 years before present. Ancient Greek mythology credited Aristeus for the discovery of cheese, and Homer's Odyssey, the 8th century BCE, describes the Cyclops making and storing sheep's and goat's milk cheese uh, in the translation by Butler. Uh, here's the passage. We soon reached his cave, but he was out shepherding, so we went inside and took stock of all we could see. His cheese racks were loaded with cheeses, and he had more lambs and kids than his pens could hold. When he had done so, he sat down and milked his ewes and goats, all in due course, and then let each of, then let each of them have her own young. He curdled half the milk and set it aside in wicker strainers. Look, that's very clearly cheese-making. That is the deliberate making of cheese as mentioned in the Odyssey, which we all had to read in high school. That's from the 8th century. Cheese goes back to nearly the beginning, and clearly before the beginning of the history of the human race. Cheese predates the Bible. Cheese predates everything. Cheese predates the history of humanity. The recorded history of humanity, I should say. I don't want to get... Um, things technically wrong. I want to be as correct as possible here. So by Roman times, cheese was an everyday food and cheese making was a mature art. Columella's De Re Rustica, uh, 65 CE, um, 
details a cheese-making process involving rennet coagulation, pressing of the curd, salting, and aging. Uh, Pliny's Natural History in 77 CE, by the way, CE is instead of AD, CE stands for Common Era instead of Anno Domine, because I do not believe in a god. So Anno Domine does not apply, Common Era does. Uh, not to, you know, shout like an evangelical atheist, but sometimes you got to, right? So uh, Pliny's Natural History in 77 Common Era devotes an entire chapter, and that's chapter 11, 97, I'm guessing that's page 97, to describing the diversity of cheeses enjoyed by the Romans of the early empire. He stated that the best cheeses came from the villages near Nîmes, N-I-M-E-S, I'm pronouncing that wrong most likely, uh, but did not keep long and had to be eaten fresh. So cheeses of the Alps and the Alpenine were as remarkable for their variety then as now. My God, all of the Alpine varieties of cheeses back then, today, there was such a variety and people considered them some of the best in the world. And that totally makes sense when you think about it because happy cows living in the remote mountains definitely have the sweetest, best grasses to graze on, the cleanest mountain springs to drink from, and so much room, so much room in to move around in. It's a little uh, stomach joke right there. Um, mm. So a Ligurian cheese, that's Liguria in Italy, uh, was noted for being mostly from sheep's milk, and some cheeses nearby were stated to weigh as much as a thousand pounds each, big blocks of cheese, big old honkers. Uh, goat's milk cheese was a recent taste in Rome, uh, improved over the medicinal taste of Gaul's similar cheeses by smoking it. So that might actually be the beginning of like smoked mozzarella, smoked gouda. Interesting. So once again, the Romans give us the advancements in culture that turn into tidal waves of culture throughout history. So like I was talking about in the episode of the Loire Valley, if it weren't for the Romans planting grapevines as they conquered, uh, in this case, if it weren't for the shared culture of Rome being passed along as places were conquered up and down Europe, we wouldn't have cheese making as it is today. Crazy. Um, of cheeses from overseas, I just wanted to say that, of cheeses from overseas, Pliny uh, preferred those of Bithynia and Asia Minor. I'm not entirely sure where that's where that is. I'm just guessing Asia, somewhere generally speaking. Uh, so in post-Roman Europe, as Romanized populations encountered unfamiliar, newly settled neighbors, uh, they'd bring their own cheese-making traditions, their own flocks, and their own unrelated words for cheese. So really, because of Romans, we had a lot of uh, cultural exchanges when it came to the technology of food-making, of, of making cheese, of making milk, of making wine and bread. Um, very interesting. Um, then cheeses in Europe diversified further, with various locales developing their own distinctive traditions and products. And as long-distance trade collapsed with the collapse of the Roman Empire, uh, only travelers would encounter unfamiliar cheeses. Charlemagne's first encounter with a white cheese that had an edible rind forms one of the constructed anecdotes of uh, Nutker's Life of the Emperor. 
And the British Cheese Board claims that Britain has approximately 700 distinct local cheeses, while France and Italy have perhaps 400 each. There's a French proverb uh, that says there's a different French cheese for every day of the year. And Charles de Gaulle once asked, how can you govern a country in which there are 246 different types of cheese? Still, the advancement uh, in, of the cheese art in Europe was slow during the centuries after Rome's fall, and many cheeses today were first recorded in the late Middle Ages or after. Cheeses like cheddar, which we're going to talk about later on, I promise, around 1500, Parmesan in 1597, Gouda in 1697, and the latecomer to the party, Camembert in 1791. Now, in 1546, the Proverbs of John Haywood claimed that the moon is made of a green, G-R-E-E-N-E, -E -E, cheese. Green here may not refer to the color, as many now think, but to being green, as in a greenhorn, or being new, or unaged. So variations on that sentiment were long repeated, and NASA exploited this myth for an April, Fool, an April Fool's Day spoof in 2006, which I gotta tell you, that's kind of funny. I love when NASA uh, plays jokes on people. So until its modern spread along with European culture, cheese was nearly unheard of in East Asian cultures and in the pre-Columbian Americas had only limited use in sub-Mediterranean Africa, mainly being widespread and popular only in Europe, the Middle East, the Indian subcontinent, and areas influenced by those cultures. But with, this, but with the spread first of uh, European imperialism, and later of Euro-American culture and food, cheese has gradually become known and increasingly popular worldwide. Um, the first factory for the industrial production of cheese opened in Switzerland in 1850. No surprises there. The Swiss putting together factories. Who knew? Color me shocked. But large-scale production first found real success here in my home the land of the red, white, and blue, home of the free land of the brave, these United States of America, and credit usually goes to Jesse Williams, a dairy farmer from Rome, New York. Once again, Rome is involved in everything. My God! Gods. Atheismo. Flying spaghetti monster? You choose. Uh, who in 1851 started making cheese in an assembly line fashion, like Henry Ford the Nazi, uh, using the milk from neighboring farms, and within decades, hundreds of such dairy associations exist. Interesting that this gets brought up here, because we're going to talk about Cabot Creameries, which is a collective... Uh, well, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to turn this milk into cheese quite yet. So, um, in the 1860s, that saw the beginnings of like mass-produced rennet itself, and by the turn of the century, scientists were producing pure microbial cultures. But before then, bacteria and cheesemaking had come from the environment or from recycling in earlier batches way. The pure cultures that science produced meant a more standardized cheese could be produced as well. And factory-made cheese overtook traditional cheesemaking in the World War II era, which makes so much sense, uh, canning foods, mass production of food, the war effort, totally makes sense. And factories have been the source of most cheese in America and Europe ever since. Um, in 2014, the European Union produced 9 million tons of cheese from whole cow milk, 
the United States 5.4 uh, million tons, Germany 1.9, France 1.8, Italy 1.2, the Netherlands 0.8 for a whopping total of 18.7 million tons being produced uh, of cheese in 2014. Incredible. So it looks like France, Iceland, Finland, Denmark, Germany, these are the highest consumers of cheese in 2014, averaging 55 pounds of cheese per person. Amazing. So there are many ways to process cheese, to make cheese, uh, many techniques. Uh, you can stretch the cheese, which is how you get mozzarella or provolone. The curd is stretched and kneaded in hot, salty water, developing a stringy, fibrous body. I was subconsciously pulling and manipulating a, a ball of mozzarella cheese in my hands. CIA trained me incredibly well. Uh, there's cheddaring, um, which you get from cheddar and other English cheeses. The cut curd is repeatedly piled up on itself, uh, pushing more and more moisture out. The curd is then milled for a long time into chips, taking the sharp edges uh, off the cut curd pieces and influencing the final product's texture. And then there's also washing for Edam, uh, Gouda and Colby, where the curd is washed in warm water, lowering its acidity, making for a milder tasting cheese. Uh, most cheeses uh, achieve their final shape when the curds are pressed into a molder form, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The harder the cheese, the more pressure is applied. The pressure drives out moisture, and the molds are, allowed, are designed to allow water to escape and unifies, unifies the curds into one single uh, solid body. Now, a newborn cheese is usually salty yet bland in flavor, uh, and for harder varieties, rubbery in texture. These qualities are sometimes enjoyed. Cheese curds eaten on their own are delicious, especially with beer. Uh, but cheese is best when it's left to rest under controlled conditions. Uh, this aging period is also called ripening, and it lasts from a few days to several years. And as a cheese ages, microbes and enzymes transform the texture and intensify flavor. And this transformation is largely a result of the breakdown of casein, proteins, and milk fat into a complex mix of amino acids, uh, amines, and fatty acids. And some cheeses actually have additional bacteria or molds produced uh, that, are, that are intentionally produced before or during aging. Um, in traditional cheese making, these microbes might already be present in the aging room. They're simply allowed to settle and grow in the stored cheeses. And more often today, prepared cultures are used, uh, and that gives more consistent result, putting fewer constraints on the environment where the cheese ages. So these cheeses include soft, ripened cheese, such as brie and camembert, blue cheeses such as Roquefort, Stilton and Gorgonzola, and rind-washed cheeses such as Limburger. Um, and there are many, many types of cheese with over 500 different varieties recognized by the International Dairy Federation, more than 400 identified by Walker and Walter and Hargrove, excuse me, more than 500 by Burkhalter, and more than 1,000 by Sandine and Elliker. The varieties may be grouped or classified into types according to criteria such as length of aging, texture, methods of making, fat content, animal milk, country of origin, or region of origin, etc., 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 with these criteria being used either singly or in combination, but with no single method being universally used, so everything is up for debate in cheese. Uh, the method most commonly and traditionally used is based on moisture content, which is then further discriminated by fat content and curing or ripening methods. 
Some attempts have been made to rationalize the classification of cheese, a scheme that was proposed by Peter Wallstra, uh, which uses the primary and secondary starter combined with moisture content, and Walter and Hargrove suggested classifying by production methods, which produces 18 types, which are further grouped by moisture content. Oh, that was exhausting. But when we come back, we're going to zoom in just a smidge. cheesiest podcast on the planet today. So my favorite cheese in the world is cheddar. I don't know if you've gathered that. It melts beautifully. It's funky, nutty, sharp, salty, creamy, and amazing. And I personally always thought, uh, and this is my my New England bias showing, I always thought that Vermont cheddar was the best. That the world could spin, but Vermont cheddar would always be the best cheddar in the world. I might have spoken too soon. When I did some research, mainly watching YouTube videos and eating grilled, grilled cheese sandwiches, I found out that cheddar has some really serious roots, underground roots, cave roots. So let's have a look at traditional cheddar cheese. In England, according to law, to be called a cheddar cheese, you need to be making cheese in one of four counties Cornwall, Devon, Dorset, or Somerset. Just those. Cheddar cheese is a PDO, Protected Designation of Origin product. Meaning that to get the designation, you need to adhere to a very specific and narrow set of rules in order to be called cheddar. Think the AOC, DOC, and DOCG laws elsewhere in the EU that we've talked about on previous episodes. So cheddar itself is a town in the West Country of England. Uh, the town itself only has one traditional cheesemaker operating currently. That's Cheddar Gorge Cheese Company, and we'll, we're going to focus on them for the sake of argument. The other places all uh, moved out to get more land so they could have more cows to make more cheese. But these guys, uh, Cheddar Gorge, they are 100% on it. Like, they stayed in town. They are still cheddar. They are Cheddar's Cheddar. So... Um, the UK makes over 333,000 tons of cheddar cheese in a year. Think about how many cheeseburgers that is. More of the stringent cheddar checklist includes uh, that the milk has to be from grazing herds no more than 30 miles from the farm. It must be of the traditional recipe. The curds need to be turned by hand. It cannot be any less than nine months old. They're like cheese Nazis. Oi, hey up, mate. This cheese ain't old enough. You go to jail, you are. Right, right to prison with you. <laughs> Can you imagine getting arrested because your cheese isn't nine, month, nine months old and you call the cheddar? She, That would suck. Uh, so the earliest record of cheddar cheese anywhere in the world is in the actual town of Cheddar itself. In 1170 Common Era, this village has been at the heart of English cheesemaking since the 15th century. 
Now it takes 10 liters of milk to make one kilo of farmhouse cheddar. And while the POD rules say that you can use pasteurized milk, Cheddar Cheese Gorge or Cheddar Gorge Cheese Company only uses raw. So the milk is then mixed, so the fat mixes all the way through, and then the rennet is added. And once the milk has started to break and curds start, start to form, the curds then get broken up and they get cooked with the ways with the whey, excuse me, and that solidifies the curd a little bit more. Cheddar cheese in the finished product is about 40% water, which puts it neatly halfway between mozzarella and parmesan. Mozzarella, of course, being the damper cheese, and parm being solid. Solid as a rock, and dry as hell. Um, the whey is then drained off, and the curds have achieved the texture of a chicken breast. Uh, this, one could say, is where the cheddar magic happens. Bring on the cheddar goblin, baby. The curds are then cut and turned by hand. They're then pressed and salted, uh, and they're stacked on top of one another, so the pressure pushes the water, pushes the whey, the, all the liquid, out of the, the cheese, out of the, the curds, uh, which is then in turn going to affect the final product and the texture thereof. So after it's pressed, it's milled into little chips. Again, the goal here is to slowly tease just the right amount of whey out and make the cheese the perfect consistency. Finally, the curds are pressed into a drum mold, a metal drum, and stored overnight. Uh, in the morning, the drums are dipped in hot water to smooth the sides and the edges. The cheese log, the drum, is then removed and coated in what will become the base of the rind and sealed in cheesecloth. It is at this point that the cheese logs are brought to Goth's cave. It has a consistent temperature, as well as 98% of humidity and a bevy of natural yeasts and bacteria that are perfect for the storing and aging of this particular cheese. Once it's in the cave, there the cheese will stay until the cheese master has decided it's seen enough waiting. They call mellow, what they call mellow, uh, is about four to six months, mature at 10 to 12, and vintage at 20 to 24. Now I know what you're thinking. I said before that in order to be protected designation, protected origin designation, that it needs to age for at least nine months. Well, here's the thing. Cheddar, che or Cheddar Gorge Cheese Company is not POD certified. They want to do it the actual traditional way and thus are unconcerned with labels. They just don't give a shit. They're the honey badger of cheese. They're like, we want to make old school cheddar cheese the way our ancestors did it. We're going to do it like them. Get out of here with your, your rules and regulations. That's arbitrary and asinine. When we come back, we're gonna talk about American cheddar cheese, including that from my loved Vermont. Back in just a moment. Stick around. Welcome back to the Danny Nerd Nick Podcast. In case you've been under a rock, in a cave, on Mars, we've been talking cheddar cheese on this episode. So the United States make a, makes a number of amazing cheeses. So I'm going to try that one more time, guys. So sorry. Uh, the United States of America makes a number of amazing cheeses, 
I personally am most partial to Cabot's Extra Sharp Hunter's favorite. It's the one with the red and black tartan on the package if you're ever in the grocery store and you see it. It's salty, creamy, tart, and continues to develop its flavor even after you've swallowed the piece. It melts well, goes great on sandwiches, tacos, mac and cheese, or even just with wine. Cabot Creameries is a collective of over 800 dairy farms in Vermont. They produce over 130 million pounds of cheese a year, in addition to their, rare, their regular dairy product line. Uh, in 2019, their, their sharp cheddar won first place at the United States Cheese Competition. I'm unsure of the name. Uh, but in 2018, their mild and medium cheddars took first at the World Cheese Championships. Oh, I wonder how I get on that panel. That sounds like a great job. This cheese is delicious. I would like more. And that one. And the other. And that one too. Bring more cheese. Be great. Oh, so much fun. Um, the Cabot Dairy Collective was formed in 1919 by 94 farmers to try and protect their community financially and declare independence from the oppressive yoke of the burgeoning factory farming industry. To this day, all 800 plus partner farms are still family owned so you know the animals are in good hands. And again, 10 gallons of milk will make one pound of cheese. And unlike their British counterpart, Cabot pasteurizes their milk. Once they receive the milk from the dairy farmer, they will add the starter culture and rent it to the milk and heat it. Once the curds begin to form, they're broken apart by wires so as to release more whey and encourage good curd production and development. The curds and whey are, took to, are cooked together for an undisclosed amount of time, at which point the cheese master will indicate that the whey is to be drained from the curds, which are then salted. The process is relatively similar in both, case, in both cases. There are some specialty types of cheese that Cabot produces, think herbs, spices, chili peppers, um, Colby, Colby Jack, um, cheddar, not cheddar, what am I talking about? Um, Pepper Jack. That's the one. Pepper Jack's, be Pepper Jack's best. Oh. Um, so the curds are then pressed together in 40 or 60 pound blocks and sent to the aging room. But unlike the United Kingdom, or the EU at large, there is no codified system of aging for cheddar cheese. The designations of mild, sharp, extra sharp, and premium are put in place by the company. They are completely at the discretion of corporate cheese daddy. There are, however, a couple of rules of thumb that you can apply here to determine how old your cheese may be, if that's, you know, something you're into. Mild, generally speaking, is about two to three months. Sharp, 12 months, give or take. Extra sharp, 18 plus months. And premium, two to five years. Another cheddar that you're likely to come across is orange cheddar. Fear not, vegetarians! It's not an entirely different type of cheese. It just has annatto in it. That's a vegetarian food coloring made from the seed of the Akiot squash. It's just a different color. That's all. When we come back for our last segment, the most comfortable comfort food that uses cheddar, the best recipe for macaroni and cheese. Stick around. Danny Nerdnik if I didn't send you away with something you want to try at home, right? Here's my mac and cheese recipe that's not only CIA approved, but more importantly, 
three-year-old approved. So I want you to take some clarified butter. You're going to heat some butter up and cook it at low heat until the solids begin to separate from the fat. Then you're going to strain the solids out. You're going to take that butter, you're going to heat it up, you're going to put in about a tablespoon, maybe two, of all-purpose flour, um, and then adjust the oil content and whisk until the whole thing comes to the texture and consistency of wet sand. Uh, that is a roux. You're going to want to cook that until uh, it starts to smell just a little bit nutty. Um, then you're going to add in milk. I like whole milk and a touch of heavy cream because I like a, a richer, more velvety sauce. So you're going to add milk, you're going to add heavy cream, and you're going to whisk, and you're going to let that thicken until it uh, gets to the, the texture of light nappe, that is to say where it coats the back of a spoon, and you can run your finger along the back of the spoon and there's a distinct uh, spot, like a distinct corridor between the top and bottom parts of milk on the back of that spoon. Then you're going to take an onion, you're going to cut a slit in it, and you're going to put in that slit, excuse me, a small thin piece of garlic and a bay leaf. This is called an onion pique. Traditionally, there would also be cloves studded into it. I don't like cloves particularly much, so I'm just going to go ahead and omit that. You are going to let that simmer in the bechamel for about 20 minutes. You're going to remove the onion piquet and throw it away. It served its purpose, it's done. Then you're going to add a little bit more heavy cream and a little bit more milk. And you're going to adjust the texture and consistency to where you need it to be. In this case, just under nappe. Because when you start whisking in your shredded cheddar, whatever you like. I prefer about as sharp as you can get your fingers on. I love sharp cheddar cheese. Like I said, Hunter's favorite by Cabot, that's my Jim Jam. You're going to whisk that in, and if you then lift a spoon and pour the sauce down, it should look like queso dip at your favorite chain restaurant. So you're going to pour that liquid, that sauce, over a box full a cooked box of elbow macaroni just under al dente. You're going to put that macaroni into an oven safe dish. You're going to pour the cheese sauce over the top. You're going to top that with more shredded cheddar, grated parmigiano, and I like to use, and this is my secret to a perfect mac and cheese, crumbled Ritz crackers. But if you don't have Ritz crackers to hand, you can always use panko. I would recommend running that panko through a food processor to break it up just a little bit. Going to put that on the top, give it a little zhuzh of some olive oil, bake it until it just starts to bubble around the edges, and then to get the top perfectly crispy and GBD, as Alton Brown would say, golden brown and delicious, or uh, just perfect, you're going to finish it under the broiler. Then you're going to cut slices, you're going to cut squares, you're going to thank me forever. Congratulations. You've just made the best mac and cheese of your life. So I wanted to thank you all for joining me on this cheesy ass adventure. Um, you can find me all over the internet. Uh, wherever you're finding me now, you can also find me on YouTube. Just search for Danny Nerdnik. Please give us a subscribe there and share all of our silly videos that we put out. Uh, you can find me on SoundCloud. Just search for Danny Nerdnik. 
uh, Apple Podcasts, search for Danny Nerdnik, Stitcher, um, Spotify, the same. You can follow me on Instagram, eatribs underscore listen to, the number two, then fish, P-H-I-S-H, like the band, eatribs underscore listen to fish. That's my Instagram handle. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Danny Nerdnik. And, of course, Danny Nerdnik on Twitter. If you want to get in touch with me, shoot me an email at dannynerdnik at gmail.com or chefdan, C-H-E-F-D-A-N dot I-N-F-O. That's chefdan.info. Um, so let's go over this whole thing one more time. Ladies and gentlemen, please call your parents. Call your friends make a sandwich or a taco or a quesadilla, burrito, whatever you're in the mood for, bow, whatever you like, then eat said sandwich, bow, burrito, taco, quesadilla, all that good shit. Do what you love every day. Smile at people. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. And never forget, I'm Danny Nerdman. Don't do anything I wouldn't do, but if you do, do it well. Catch you all later on.